Promise No Promises The Tail and the Tongue Episode 3 The Camera That Listens The podcast Promise No Promises unfolds a further chapter The Tail and the Tongue This series of new episodes arises from conversations between curator and writer Sonia Fernandez-Pan and guests from different storytelling practices and world-making experiences. For a conversation to take place, it is sufficient when two people start talking to each other. However, conversations are never happening just between two people. A conversation holds many bodies, places, stories and experiences. It develops languages and creates interpersonal and temporary dialects. Sharing is also a way of collecting seemingly individual circumstances. Our bodies host many narratives, speaking borrowed words and making stories an important part of who we become. Stories travel between bodies swelling in them. Always in motion, they have no end. Words make worlds in which reality and its fictions travel through the tongue to become tales. The Camera That Listens is the third episode that follows a conversation with artist and filmmaker Alex Reynolds. Her work constantly explores our modes of relation and affection as they appear embodied in a cinematic language. Moreover, I would go so far as to say that her work both produces and is produced by modes of relation and affection through film processes, altering and expanding the narrative structures of cinema and making them more visible to the audience. In Alex Reynolds' films, viewers get invited to enter into stories and situations in a similar way to being invited to play a new game. Many of her films take place on the screen, Others are events that cannot be fully seen from the outside because they include the spectator's view by their very presence in the place. In the process of our conversation on the occasion of her latest film, Alex shared with me a conversation with her and Alma Sonderberg. The Hand That Sings is the title of this new collaboration between Alex and Alma. It is a conversation built up by connecting gestures, by words in different languages that travel from mouth to ear and back again, by eyes that listen and by a camera that even caresses the images welcomed by our senses. In the four-handed conversation with Alma, Alex asks if it's possible to steer away from the violence of being looked at. Could the gaze of someone upon us be received as a gift? A little further on, Alma states how listening is a good tool to move into the depth of seeing. The ear is a camera lens. Afterwards, in our conversation, while we start talking about the camera, Alex again brings up the notion of gazes that are made possible through filming, the gazes that inspired her to produce films and thus somehow continue the gestures, rhythms and sensorial visuality of other filmmakers. The importance of sound in Alex's work reminds me of yet another quote by writer Giovanna Rivero. Music defines how you see life. It enters through the ear but modifies the sight. And Giovanna Rivero reminds me again of Alex Reynolds when she quotes poet Antonio Machado. 
The eye is not an eye because you see it. It is an eye because it sees you. Personally, I really like Alex's own definition of her films, which she understands as portraits of a relationship. Also, I like the fact that most of her projects are based on friendships in a very organic way. As a viewer of her films and projects, I am given the access to environments and moments inhabited by the intimacy people produce and communicate, precisely because they present and represent relationships and not merely characters or archetypes. I think there is a very special kind of friendship that emerges from working with people we admire and love. I also think it's very special to feel glimpses of friendship in other people's work, being invited to other people's forms of intimacy through art. As Alex tells us during our conversation, there is a continuous negotiation and improvisation with the people who work in close collaboration with her. This form of improvisation has a lot to do with music and sound with playing in bands and together with friends. This conversation with Alex Reynolds took place in early July 2021. Alex was in Barcelona and I was in Berlin, two cities that we both know well and that also connect us thanks to common friends living there. It would be in Barcelona in 2011 when the piece We Can Hear You Drink would take place, a performance by Alex for a single spectator that I was unable to attend in the end, cancelling one of the several live films that happened these days. It has been also around the same time that I would first hear Alex talking when she presented the publication resulting from her project But They Are Not You. This project evolved around someone who led a life parallel to those of the participants. That person looked like them, answered in their name, lived in their houses. But she was not them. This project, like many others by Alex, confirms that not all films have to happen on screen. It shows that cinema is much more than moving image, but instead is a life in motion. Although our conversation could have gone on for much longer, we decided to end this podcast by talking about art and fiction as spaces of possibilities for enunciating and relating to conflict, spaces for the uncomfortable, for what may not be shown or said elsewhere. At this point, perhaps the difference between ethics and morality is a distinction worth talking about further, making visible the unspoken scripts and narratives that also structure the public sphere of art and culture. I was thinking about this question and then also thinking in relation to my conversations with Alma lately, that instead of talking about what is problematic, I would rather talk about the ones that are not. And in that way, maybe we can imagine which ones were a problem, actually. 
I do think if we speak less against things, because when you include your opponent, you give them space, continuity by doing so. So if I can say one thing that would bother me or that bothers me sometimes about the way some films are constructed or the way people look through them is a sort of assumed consensus as to how you look at something or how you look at someone. Or as a filmmaker, you develop a sort of ethics of looking at the world, establishing certain distances from those you film, or which distance is the right distance, or how much space you give, or how invasive you can be. I think I often felt uncomfortable or like that the way that a lot of films established a relation with the world was not one that I recognized as one that I could continue or whose legacy I could continue. And then I started discovering the films of some women filmmakers and the way they were looking at the world and there was something that I recognized there and made me want to make films actually. And I can speak of, for example, Claire Denis or Lucrecia Martel. But what I found interesting about Claire Denis was that as I became more and more obsessed with her films, I realized that it wasn't just Claire Denis and the way she makes films, it's the person she films with. She would often film with Agnès Godard, who's her cinematographer, her usual cinematographer. And towards the latest films, many of them, they didn't film together. And I feel that there's a difference there. So it really emphasizes the fact that it was the magic of that collaboration that I thought generated this amazing approach to body and to people and uh, a sort of way of accepting that there were borders and limits between people and that other people were unknowable but a desire to come close anyway and to generate an intimacy. I'm reminded of how Lucrecia Martel would sometimes talk about how she thinks of the camera and she thinks of the camera as a child. And so when you start thinking of the camera as a child, you will not put the camera on top of a moving car or you won't put it on a crane or you won't do all these crazy action shots. So the camera is usually relatively static, quite close to the ground. I think what's interesting about this idea for her is not only what it generates as to where she places the camera, but what does it mean to look at the world as a child? It means to look at everything as if it were brand new. It means to look at the world with a sense of wonder, to be disturbed by it, but like maybe without judgment. There are other ways of approaching how you use the camera that I think generate a whole ethics of how you place yourself in the world or how you relate to others. And, and those ways of looking were the ones that made me interested in making films or made me think maybe I want to continue with that or there's a place for me there. And then there's also another person, actually, Joaquim Jordá, a documentary filmmaker from Catalonia, who's unfortunately not that well known outside of Catalonia. I'm always very frustrated by this because I think he's amazing. He was amazing. The way he looked at people, he didn't look through the camera. He was always very close to the camera, but was actually talking to people. And you can really feel the affection with or the empathy with which he looks at the people he's filming. And you kind of feel that they feel it, too. There's a connection there, an openness, an acknowledgement that making that film with him might change something in them. So there's something transformative about his filmmaking, I found, while watching him. And 
I think about him a lot lately because I hadn't thought about him for years. It was maybe 10 years ago that I really started getting into his whole filmography and wanting to study it, but only recently I realized how much it's affected the way I think about how to use the camera and how to film other people and how to generate an event with and through the camera. Film, I think it's a relatively new art form. I don't know if you compare it to painting, for example. It's also been used a lot as a continuation of theatre or of the play. So very verbocentric as well, and like very much based on a three-act structure that comes from the more traditional use of drama. I don't know, I'm interested more to think about cinema, not only in relation to storytelling, or when you think about storytelling, not to think about a written story, but to really think how image and sound can generate moments of tension and relation, and more to think in terms of the senses and the explosion of identity that I think also cinema can generate, which you were talking about earlier in more negative terms when you said that you kept on identifying with like the male heroes and so on. This capacity of identification for better or for worse, I think is one of the really powerful things about film. I'm more interested in filmmakers that really work on the sensorial and really work with image and sound and less with an organization of text or illustrating text through images or putting words in someone's mouth and so on. I'm very interested in sound and in rhythm and music and I guess like ultimately I'm interested in what kind of relations or forms of connection you can generate through film and I think sound is a way in which people sync up together without touching. No? So like if I start doing this, you might start moving your head <laughs> to the rhythm of my snapping of the fingers and that's us like moving together for a while and it, we do this through sound. Also the vibration of the waves can have a tactile effect, like your skin is affected. So it's a way of touching each other without actually touching. I worked a lot with sound and images and also having like certain sounds affect other images or making an image have a sound, the image disappears, the sound continues, but attaches itself to another image that comes afterwards and ways of connecting things. I think sound is a very beautiful way of doing that actually. For the film, This Door, This Window, it started off, I wanted to make a fiction film where two characters were affecting one another through rhythm. And This Door, This Window was kind of taking that part of the film and just doing a more sort of focalized experiment with that. Like two bodies that were in a space, but not at the same time, and uh, they could still hear each other and affect one another through hearing or feeling each other's rhythm. I worked with Alma Soderberg, with whom I've collaborated again, and also with Nilo Gallego, who often appears in my films. And Nilo Gallego is a performer and an artist. He's also a, an amazing drummer, and uh, Alma Soderberg is a choreographer who works a lot with rhythm and sound and listening. 
And the film, the original fiction film, had to do with this idea of living together and uh, finding moments of synchronicity or finding moments of claustrophobia when you're living with someone in close quarters in a close relationship. So I interviewed them beforehand about their experiences in living together and ideas of violence also within the home or of tension or anger and like what place you can have for them. At the time, both had a um, baby with their respective partners. And I think it was something that we're thinking about a lot. So like this idea of um, wanting the house to stay open and to have air running through it. Like it was a sort of metaphor that they didn't want the family unit to close them in into this group of three. They wanted to be able to have connections with others and so on. And these were themes that came out through the interviews with both of them in, in a way. What I did was I made a soundscape, which included some of these interviews and then some rhythms that Nilo had played and I had asked them to play. Alma was listening to this. She was listening to Nilo play music, but she was also listening to these words and these sentences. And I asked her to just react to them physically and rhythmically in the space. And we were recording her, so then I did the same exercise with Nilo, whereby he was listening to the same soundscape as Alma, but then with Alma's sounds. And so he was jamming with her, listening to her. They never appear on screen together, but there is this fiction and this feeling that they're jamming together in the same space. It almost feels like they look at one another at some points, and the space is exactly the same, but they're recorded at a different time. So the, the fiction that the film presents is that they're together. They're just together through sound, basically. I have this ongoing performance where someone will call me or I will call someone on the phone. It works, like I've done different iterations of it. The first time I did it, it was the presentation in Printed Matter in New York, invited by Cara Benedetto. And I couldn't be there, so I asked my friend Gabriel to be there instead and to repeat things that I would say to him over the phone. So he had to go in front of a microphone. I called him and then he would listen to what I said and repeat it. And what I loved about that were the silences and hearing his silence and imagining the tension of that audience just watching his face as he heard what I said. And this is an image that I find very beautiful and that it comes up a lot in my films and it comes up a lot in this door or this window and it's that of someone listening attentively and having themselves be traversed by a sound by a rhythm or by music like you can no one's touching them but you can see the whole face and the whole body can changes They were filmed separately, so they didn't meet in between the shoot. They only heard each other, but they had met before. Because when I was preparing for the film, I asked Alma to do a workshop with me and Milo around movements in the house and how to generate rhythms around it. And we just spent a couple of weekends together with her and she made us do a whole series of exercises. So we had met that way. That's actually how I met Alma. Like I saw her work online and then I went to a workshop of hers and she was amazing. <laughs> And I'm like, I want to get to know this woman. She's amazing. It was so close to what I was thinking about, what she was doing, that I asked her if she would teach a couple of workshops to Milo and I. And at the time, she'd just given birth, so it took a while until she got back to us. But then I went over to her place for a coffee and to explain the project to her. And then we realized we also had Spain in common and we started speaking Spanish. And we just almost instantly became friends 
So the friendship developed out of the sort of curiosity about her work and wanting to work with her. And then the friendship led to more work because we wanted to find excuses to continue spending time together after she moved to Sweden. And then we ended up making other films. Sometimes you don't know what comes first, an interest in the work or the friendship. Like it goes, it's been different in, with different people. Some people were friends before I worked with them and other people, the friendship came as a result of a common interest or curiosity in each other's work and wanting to continue with that. Working with friends has allowed me to find a way of using the camera that I'm comfortable with, actually. I was talking to Sabel Gabaldon recently and he was saying how in recent films you really feel there's a change in the use of the camera, the intimacy with the people that are appearing on screen. And I think that does come as a result of something that sounds very cheesy, but I, I do think of a loving camera gaze and what that allows and what that gives space for. It's true that I have no problem with working with friends, but I do wonder now for the next projects like... If that's how I've managed to work in a way that now I feel happy with, how can I transfer that to filming a stranger? Or will I never film a stranger? Because I've always felt uncomfortable going somewhere else and landing somewhere where I don't know people and turning on a camera. That feels deeply wrong for me. Like I know other people and find really strong, beautiful ways of doing it. For me, it generates too many problems. And I think that's also partly why I've decided to generally go small and film people in my close circle and also film at home and... But there are some projects that are coming up that will involve working with people I don't know. And the big question for me is how will I handle that? In those projects, like they must wear but they are not you. I was thinking through cinema and I was thinking about what cinema did, but there was no camera. So there was a lot of space, like people were left really alone with the work. They had all the space in the world to make decisions, to be freaked out, to ignore the work, to throw it away, to walk away, to not show up. <laughs> it's very different from just arriving in a community and turning a camera on. But there's probably an already a relation of trust there, no? So you're okay with her filming you or taking pictures. I, the whole thing, I think, has to do with ideas of reciprocity, maybe. For example, there's this saying by Antonio Machado I often go back to, which is like, el ojo no es ojo porque tú lo veas, es ojo porque te ve, which in English would mean the eye is not an eye because you see it, it's an eye because it sees you. It's that awareness or that ongoing acknowledgement that you don't, I don't film someone unawares unless there's already a sense of trust and I know that they would be comfortable with that. Because there is something invasive about filming someone while they're not looking. Like in this other film by day, I'm being filmed while I'm sleeping and while I'm talking in my sleep by my ex-partner. But we agreed that he could do that. But there's still something deeply uncomfortable about watching those images. And it's that I don't know what I'm doing and I'm being filmed. So the level of consent I can give, you know, where is it exactly if I'm actually unconscious? And there are other filmmakers, like, for example, I saw recently a film by Raymond Depardon. And I love his films from the 80s, for example. I think they're amazing. But, like, he was filming these trials that happen in psychiatric hospitals with uh, patients there. And very often they're medicated and he's filming them in extreme close-up. And I found this, like, so violent because they're sedated. So how can they possibly look back? And, like, look back, I don't even mean with the eye, but, like, how can they reciprocate or, like, consent to that? 
this idea of, of reciprocity is important to me. And I think that's also why I often use games, because there's a... Once again, in my films, we're mostly... There's never a pre-established consensus. The consensus is created and then lost, and then an agreement appears, and then or a moment of synchronicity, or if music happens, and then everything goes to chaos again, or there'll be a game of charades, charades. And so two people agree that this gesture means this word, and then they move on to another one. And all those moments of storytelling or coming together are constantly being negotiated and you as a viewer sort of take part in that game you're an active viewer because you're also trying to guess together with the person guessing in the film and to me to generate that sort of uh, active viewer but also active uh, person being filmed is important Music is a huge influence at so many levels. As I was saying before, the way that we connect, and but also the way sound can be so invasive. But then also making music and friendship, making music with friends has been a huge influence in how I make my films. In fact, it was a real eye-opener. I started playing with a band. Before I started playing with a band, I never really worked with a team. I wasn't making films. I was in a moment where I had stopped making films and I was making performances and text-based works and sound works that had to do with cinema. It was my way of going to film school. Like I didn't make films, but I made all these other pieces that allowed me to research elements uh, of filmmaking. And then after playing in a band, I started making films again. And I started working with other people and delegating the camera to someone else and having someone record sound and like things that I hadn't done before, actually. And I think it's because when I started playing music in the band at the beginning, I would come up with an idea I would come up with a melody and a, a guitar riff and I would already know how the bass should sound, how the drums should sound and be like, okay, so I think that drums could sound like this. And then have you heard this other bass thing? Like maybe you could do this. And then I very quickly realized what was the point of playing in a band if you were going to do that? Like what was amazing is to come in with an idea and then Eli and Elena would start playing around with it and something much better than anything I could have possibly imagined would come through, of course. <laughs> And this way of working and this trust in the people you work with extended to the way I make films now. I try to work with the same people because I feel there's already an affinity and we understand one another. I always try to work with Laszlo Umbreit on sound. I worked with Sidel many times on camera and more recently I've picked up a camera again. It's taken me, I don't know, 15 years to want to do that, <laughs> to look through a camera again. This way of improvising and of being open to other people's input and understanding it as a collaborative practice came through music making for me.
En La Mano que Canta, it's also like Julia's voice, Julia Spinola's voice appears in La Mano que Canta and it also appears in another film called Juana, because I love her use of language. In both films, she's reacting either to a body making gestures or to a set of sounds or a set of images and she's sort of like riffing off of what she sees. The images that pop up in their head and her head and that come out through words, I always find they're almost like little poems. So the way language appears in La Mano que Canta is kind of interesting because it's never fixed to anything. So at the beginning of the film, Julia's words are edited together with images of close-up of trees that don't have cork anymore. She will say moon, and with that image, you will try to find the moon in that image. But towards the end of the film, she says moon again, and the image you're seeing is a hand moving and making sounds. And so that word still resonates with what you saw in the tree, but it's suddenly a word, but it's an image from a tree. It's a hand that becomes a moon, but there's never an image of a moon. It's a language that allows for a lot of layers and things to come up. And in La Mano que Canta, we really wanted a lot of things to be present simultaneously and for there not to be a hierarchy between them. And that's kind of how we use language. But there's also a scene where Alma and I are exchanging words and we just want to... There are words that we like to have pass through our tongues. <laughs> I like this word. I'm going to make my friend say this word and see how it sounds coming from her mouth. It's language also as material, not only as meaning. And voice for me is very important. So like when I record a voice, like how that body is at the time of the recording or who they're with, for me will change the sound of the voice, the warmth of the voice, everything changes. And also there was this thing with language. There's something about being forced to speak English when it's not, for example, in this interview, we would normally be speaking Spanish and we're having to do this in English, which is totally unnatural for us. But we do it, we do it. And a lot of the books and the theory we read has been written in English. And I'm starting to feel like a, a certain resistance towards that. And for us, it was important that in the film, we didn't force ourselves to speak one language. We allowed Spanish and English to come in and out and mix together because that's the way we normally talk. And we think that's fine to have like moments of opacity where an English speaker will miss out some words, but a Spanish one will also miss out certain other words. Like how much we were going to translate of that was also something we discussed quite a lot. You were saying before about the voice and to see snow where someone is busy reading images. I think I end up thinking about voice as action as well. So I like hearing something being said for the first time as opposed to something being memorized and then reenacted. So I have a lot of people in my films reading something or translating something or naming something they see or describing it. There's an active search for words. And this I really enjoy hearing. I think it, it just sounds different. <laughs> I, there's someone, for example, in To See Snow who's learning how to say certain words in Spanish phonetically, but she doesn't know what she's saying. And that also generates a completely different way of moving your mouth through language or through a word. Or... So all those things I love to work with in the films. And in terms of what you were saying about feeling like you're being taught or like certain morals are being imposed, it's again for me this assumption of consensus I was talking about at the beginning, which makes me very uncomfortable generally when I see a film that assumes I agree to begin with. It's not only that, but I think there's an increasingly heavy emphasis in content and uh, forgetting of form or forgetting to use form critically. 
which I find very problematic, actually. When you were talking about what can be shown, what can be told, for me, I'm interested in works that do something to me. And I then have to figure out what did that do to me and why? And it generates an active questioning on my side, as opposed to what did that work tell me is right, you know, and wrong and how to judge. You know, there's a judgmental thing there that makes me super uncomfortable. I'm just not interested in. I do value form and like this is something else that I spoke about with Sabel Gabaldon that there is a sort of interest in structuralist film on my side but it's always or I've always tried to combine it with affect and relation and portraiture so how can you think critically or look at things with a certain distance but still allow for a relationship to emerge and for affect to be there for there to be a certain amount of emotion that crossover is something that I'm interested in. There's also like a lack of listening. There's so much focus on speech and on stating an opinion or stating, um, yeah, your opinion and freedom of expression and so on. And of course, like I'm not speaking against freedom of expression, but I'm like, what about the right to listen? There was this really incredible article by Astrid Taylor about a year ago that I read that spoke about the right to listen. And what would it mean if we even legally thought about that as a right as opposed to just the right to speak? And I think it, it really does turn things around. When Alma and I think about La Mano Que Canta, The Hand That Sings, we were really talking about a camera that has the capacity to have that attention to listening. Like, what does it mean if an eye is like an ear? <laughs> or what does it mean if they're not as different? Or, or what are the requirements to actually listen attentively? moved to Brussels and I was completely obsessed by the Palais de Justice, the Palace of Justice, which is a delirious building. And there are so many legends, like anyone you talk to in Brussels has a story to tell about the Palais de Justice, full of crazy stories, the same way it's full of crazy spaces. And so when I first moved to Brussels, I just started to sneak in just to discover the building. I was really blown away by how labyrinthine it is and how some rooms, I don't know, it's like 20 meters high and you feel tiny and then you sneak into a lift and floor one, floor two, floor two and a half, and then you're in John, being John Malkovich and suddenly the ceiling you know, reaches your head and you feel like you're huge. And they had this Alice in Wonderland thing about it. And at the same time, it had this extremely dark colonial past. You walk around those rooms and it's full of all these... I mean, the only women that appear there are like naked marble sculptures and the rest are busts of judges and men and photographs of them. And... I first filmed, but then I made a piece that was a text that was very much a sort of Alice in Wonderland text, which was like, not the film, but like to experience the building through how it makes you feel physically. This is what I found interesting because it was built to intimidate. It was built to make you feel big, make you feel small, make you feel lost, have secret places. And for me, it was a very, very good portrait of the 
biggest aberrations of the legal system, actually, that very building. And the delirium of where it was placed, they kicked out a whole neighborhood in order to build it. It's built in a way that you can see it from any point of Brussels. So you're constantly reminded of the power of the law and the power to punish it has. And like, you don't forget that it's there. So I started doing these incursions into the building and just walking around. And then I decided um, to start filming. And initially I started recording with a GoPro camera. What I didn't like about those images was the fact that, maybe I'm getting a bit technical here, but it was really like a steady cam and you're just this floating thing walking through the building. And you also have a very wide angle camera lens. I didn't find this interesting because it felt too much like a video game. And because we forgot the body behind the camera because you couldn't feel the shakiness of my hand or my footsteps and so on. It took me some time to find a good camera that didn't distort in that way and that didn't have a ridiculous stabilizer. But finally I found this tiny camera that I could walk around with and that had surprisingly good sound. And I just would go on my own and film. But like to begin with, the building freaked me out so much that I would go in the morning and start recording and I would come home to back up the files and just look at them briefly. And I was just like, fuck, you're walking too fast. <laughs> you know? I couldn't bring myself to walk slowly because I was afraid of getting caught and because there were some rooms and corridors that I found genuinely scary and that I also realized no one could find me or if someone found me, no one would hear me. There are a lot of film images in that building. You're walking through certain corridors and you see The Shining. You walk through another one and you remember another horror film. You walk through another one and it's a period film. And anyway, so I would have to return in the afternoon and force myself to take deep breaths and walk slowly. And film, again, it's very dysfunctional. There are some rooms that are still working and some offices that are still working. And then there are many abandoned spaces. It's just too huge to take care of or to use, actually, this build, or to heat up. It's a ridiculous building. It's massive. It's really, really massive. It's egomaniac sort of delirium of the king who built it. But there was also another thing that I found interesting when I was looking at the footage when I began to edit First that I would do all these drawings. It ended up as a series of drawings because it was my only way of looking at these long, long sequence shots and kind of like taking them in and remembering which was which. But the other thing is like, I realized I couldn't edit the film. If you had a lot of cuts, it would feel like I had made that building up through the editing. I feel like the building edits itself. You open a door and there's this incredibly beautiful fresco of uh, these fishermen and like women with fish. And then you open another door and there's a basement where there's a burnt car and a ping pong table. No one would believe a building like that exists unless it was a sequence shot. And you believe that I'm walking through it, which I am. The idea of how to edit was also made the building even more fascinating to me as well. For the film, I think I filmed three days altogether, if I remember correctly. I would go in the morning, go home, then go again in the afternoon, and I would get lost again. Like, and there was one space I wanted to film again, and I remember having sort of like nightmares. I just didn't want to go again, because it had become like a really scary place for me. It's one of the lifts that open onto a dark room, and in that room there was a pile of cigarettes on one side, which means there's a worker going there to do their cigarette break. And I was really scared that the door would open and I would find a person facing me. That became a sort of nightmare. And then the next time I went, the lift opened and there was a pile of cigarettes, a Coke can, and a chair facing the lift. <laughs> 
It's also the past of the building and how it was. It's just like full of horror. Like it's a bit of a horror movie. It's between comedy and horror, I think, Palais in the end. In a lot of my films, there is this fine line between tenderness and horror. In By Day, for example, when I'm talking in my sleep, there's something very intimate and tender about that scene. But there's also something a bit disturbing about the fact I'm being filmed and talking unconsciously. There's something very invasive about it. Because I often think, how close can you get to someone? Like, if you don't accept that there's a border between you, you can become very invasive. And when someone's becoming very invasive, it can become quite horrifying. Um... I'm interested in when a love becomes claustrophobic or invasive. And through film, I often use horror to talk about that. But um, I think tenderness is very connected to fear as well. I think we feel tenderness towards people we love or are afraid to lose or afraid we'll get harmed, like children or pets. I connect tenderness to, to kids, to pets, to someone you're in love with. And I think that tenderness is connected to something might happen to you and I have to take care of you. So I think when you sort of amp up the tenderness, <laughs> the horror kind of comes with it or the fear comes with it. That's a line that I'm interested in and that I explore in some of the films. Although the latest one, La Mano Que Canta, is the most luminous film I've made, <laughs> surprisingly, during the pandemic, and doesn't have that horror element so present. Como si fuera viento, basically it was a group of friends, all women. We were on holiday, we were camping in Galicia, next to a beach, a surfer's beach. And before going there, I said we should make a horror film, like a zombie movie or something. It came about because of an image, a photograph of Ellie, actually, <laughs> eating a sandwich after being gluten-free for ages. And she just looked like a monster eating the sandwich. And I'm like, wow, perfect zombie, we should make a film. And in fact, she's the protagonist of the film in the end. So it really, it started off as a joke. But once we were there, uh, one of us, Violeta, had a camera that could shoot in HD. And so we just started playing around and in the mornings we'd be having coffee and Violeta would be like, okay, what are we filming today? And Anna and I would go to the camping bar and start to try to write up scenes or play games that might generate dialogues. And it all felt very serious because we we're basing it on this sort of Duras text. And she's like, it's missing a bit of Nilo. And Nilo is a person I often work with who has a lightness about him that is always very wonderful. <laughs> and while we were writing and talking and having coffee, I kept on observing this kid who came into the bar and then left the bar. And then a cup dropped on the floor and broke. And he started picking up the pieces and giving them to the bartender. And with his other arm, he was holding back his little brother so he wouldn't get cut. And I was just watching him and there was something very special about him. I just told Anna, that kid is our Nilo. She turns around and she looks at him and she's like, you're right, I'm going to talk to his parents. And I'm like, no, 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 I was just kidding. And she's like, no, really, I'm going to talk to his parents. And I'm like, I'm serious, I was kidding. And then she just went out and came back and she's like, we're filming with a kid after lunch. And so then after lunch, we set up a couple of scenes between Ellie, who was the zombie, and the child. And once again, instead of writing up a script, I just told the kid, okay, this is a zombie. We asked the parents to explain. And we also told the parents a little bit what the film was about in case they thought it was a bad idea for their kid to be in a film like that. So I just told the kid to ask 
the zombie whatever questions he had. That whole dialogue comes out of his genuine curiosity as to what a zombie is and how they live in the world and like whether they have friends or family, what they eat. <laughs> the one direction that Ellie the zombie had was that at one point she had to tell the kid that she ate people. And of course I checked with the father before, are you sure it's fine that we tell this kid we're not gonna like traumatize him for life or anything, are we? And he's like, nah, he'll be fine. He's a Galician kid. That's how that scene came about. The kid's just like asking her what she eats and he goes through a whole list of possible dishes that she might be into and talks about his food habits and everything. And at one point it's like, I eat people. And the kid is just so shocked at the moment that he turns around and stares straight into the camera. Like, is this for real? <laughs> you know, and then turns back and they just keep talking. There's no judgment on his side. It's very beautiful. There you do have that cross between tenderness and horror, of course, very clearly. I was playing with a sense of discomfort, but also with a sense of recognition, with people's identity and how sometimes they felt that they were being portrayed in a way that they recognized and suddenly that would slip into something that they didn't feel was them. And how you kept on switching in between the two and that generated something uncomfortable and maybe a bit violent. But They Are Not You, it's a project I did with um, mobile art productions in Sweden, MAP. They didn't exactly work in public art, but they were commissioning work that could happen in different spaces in the city and so on. And they heard about my piece, Teremos Beber, and they asked me to propose something. And I proposed a very private piece that would happen inside viewers' homes, and they would receive things through the post throughout a whole month. Like, I liked this idea of some an artwork that follows you the way a novel does you know you don't go to an exhibition and then go home and it's over it's like you're reading it for maybe a couple of weeks or a month and those characters and the tone and the mood kind of accompanies you throughout all that time I thought that was kind of interesting and I was wondering if we could do it with an artwork I was also thinking in terms of film so I was thinking about off-screen and on-screen space and I thought okay what if on-screen space is someone's house how can we enter the house what would the off-screen space or the possibilities of entry be in it I thought, well, they'll look through the window, maybe they hear sounds from the neighbors, maybe they get something through the post or they get a phone call. Those were the possibilities of entry. And in the end, we decided to go for letters. It began by MAP sending out a very long questionnaire to people who said they were up for participating. Well, there was first an email that said, someone is living inside your house, they look like you, they answer to your name. They act like you, but they are not you. And then it said, if you were interested in being on the receiving end of this project, send an email here. And surprisingly, with that small amount of information, people were uh, curious enough to write. So we sent this extensive questionnaire to everyone. And it was just at the time when we were starting to fill in questionnaires and give our data away online. This was like 10 years ago. We were starting to do it, but there were still discussions around privacy that were much stronger then. Those discussions were happening. Well, now we're giving away so much information all the time without thinking about it. This questionnaire asked, you know, where do you live? Who do you live with? What are the names of the people you live with? What are their ages and your relation to them? 
what's your job? And then what's your favorite cafe? And then things like, do you believe in love? When was the last time you went dancing? Do you have a favorite spot at the table or in bed? A lot and lots and lots of questions of very different tones. Half of the people who signed up replied. And then out of those questionnaires, I selected eight, if I remember correctly, so that I could make fictional characters out of each profile, but try to make that character as close to the reality I could see through the questionnaire as possible. But also the questionnaire allowed me to then walk around their neighborhoods. I knew what they could see through their windows, for example. And I knew which people lived together and might actually cross paths in real life. So according to how probable it was that I could make relationships between them, that's how I selected the characters. It was a bit creepy. Basically, I was a bit of a stalker. Basically, I was a stalker. I started looking at Shortcuts and Magnolia and other films that have a lot of different crossing stories and characters and, um, and try to do something like that with their stories. So the way that people would receive the piece at home was through letters that they had written themselves. So they were signed in their own name and they were received with a return to sender system. So the whole thing's really twisted. So you're at home and suddenly you receive this letter it's uh, addressed to someone called Eric, and it's your address at the back, and that's why you got it. And you open it, and it's Dear Eric, and like there's a letter to Eric that includes a lot of private information about you that is written from your point of view. One woman wrote to say how she had felt, and she was like, it was as if someone had entered my body to take my place. And that, that was just through writing and through text and through a piece of paper entering your house. That was how the piece worked. And what was interesting and what was also a challenge is that every person's letter had to work without the answers from the other characters. So each person received four letters from their own point of view and had to follow a story through those four letters. But then I didn't want the information to repeat itself because it was then collected as an epistolary novel in a book afterwards. So that was a real challenge for me in the writing. It was also written very quickly. I think that was the biggest challenge, how to organize the information in a way that each one had enough of a story without too much repetition or redundance. That's the power of fiction. For me, fiction is interesting as a tool to allow you to be otherwise or to imagine yourself otherwise. And sometimes you see yourself in a way that you'd rather not see yourself in. But they are not you. I think that's what happened, that people through that questionnaire presented a portrait of themselves. But I would read between the lines and tell them, actually, through what you've said, I saw this other thing. And so there's all these multiple perspectives are in there at the same time. In Como Si Fuera Viento, where we're using the genre of like a zombie film or a vampire movie, for me, what's interesting is to use the fiction for someone to be able to expand their way of behaving in the world. Like I was at a film festival recently and we had a Q&A. It was myself and two other filmmakers who had gone to film school. One of them had made a documentary and they were talking about the editing process. And she started saying how she loved turning people into characters, how through the editing process, she realized, ah, this person can be the um, comic relief character and this other person will be the bad guy. And they tried to emphasize that in the edit. I asked myself the question, how do I do it? And I realized that I do the opposite thing, <laughs> that I avoid as much as I can to reduce people to a character. And instead, I propose for them to play a fictional character so that something else can emerge about them. They multiply themselves rather than reducing themselves.
I love learning through fiction. Very often I'm reading theory, contemporary theory, and I'm like, Virginia Woolf was already onto this in her novels. It's a much more open way of discovering things, I find, fiction. It leaves more room. It allows for an imagination to enter, which I appreciate. To reflect what you were saying before about the idea that we're all playing roles as soon as you realize that, and that some of them are very constrictive, it gives you the possibility to just try another one. But that was also part of my interest in film structures to begin with, just realizing to what extent they affect the possibilities we see of relating to one another. If one person insults me, my instant reaction should be to punch him in the face. I mean, I'm being super simplistic here, but that suddenly a lot of the possible options are reduced to two or three, and we don't imagine others. And we go about life following these little scripts and not deviating from them. And I find that sometimes if you can turn, open up those fictions and make them go in different directions, I think they do give you different ideas of how to behave in your everyday life as well. It opens up other possibilities, basically. Where else will we place conflict then? Art, it's such a good space to rehearse conflict. Where else, if we cannot, through culture or through art, handle conflict? Like, where else, where else are you going to put it? What better place to rehearse it and to find other ways of dealing with it than art or fiction? Or I find that very bizarre, what you say, to avoid conflict within art. I just don't see the point. I'm not saying all art should generate a conflict, but the fact that that shouldn't be allowed makes no sense to me. One of my favorite things is seeing women behaving badly, for example. When I see that in a film or I read it in a novel, it's very liberating. And of course, you can judge those characters, but they're characters. I think it's the perfect place to have that. Just to finish what we were talking about, and I'm actually... Even now that we're talking about it, I think, hmm, do I want to be heard talking about this? Um, because it's such a tricky subject, right? But I think what it's generated is that if the, the general um, ambient is of fear or of guilt or of uh, judgment, what it generates is, a, yeah, it is a, there's a lack of conversation happening or happening in public, right? Like, because I do talk about these issues a lot, very, very often but only in very small groups and in private. And, and that's because we're all afraid of talking about them in public or through social networks and so on. And I think that's worrying because it's really impoverishing the public debate somehow to an extent, I think, because no one dares to speak. I don't know, during confinement, I was reading Spinoza and he talks about sort of like the sad affects and the joyful affects and how, yeah, I don't know that guilt and fear can generate uh, much good ultimately. I teach at a university and my students a couple of years ago um, were very sensitive to certain issues and told each other to be quiet and, and that there were certain issues that they couldn't talk about because it upset them and so on. And I didn't know how to handle the situation at the time and I, I took a bit of a break from teaching to try to see what my position was. And at the beginning of this year I did say everyone can talk about anything they want in my class. and. If it's problematic or disturbing, you can leave the class and come back. For me, it was really important for everyone to feel that they could fuck up or that they could say something wrong and that we would argue about it and discuss it, but that speech was allowed and discussion was allowed, no matter how difficult it was or uncomfortable it was. 
And there's something, for example, in Cristina Morales, there's that as well. You have a lectura fácil. There are these four women. I think one of the things that they say at first is no one ever tells anyone to shut up here. <laughs> I have to say I kind of agree with that. But yeah, it's difficult. Like now we have the, the far right rising in Spain and like there are certain things that they're saying that are pure hate speech. And of course, like there's a limit and that is the limit, clearly. Promise No Promises is a podcast series produced by the Women's Center for Excellence, a research project at the Art Institute FHNW Academy of Art and Design in Basel, conceived as a think tank tasked to assess, develop and propose new social languages and methods to understand the role of women in the arts, culture, science and technology, as well as in all knowledge areas that are interconnected with the field of culture today. If you're interested to get more information about further podcasts and events related to this project, please visit dertank.ch. That's dertank.ch. Or request information or subscribe to our newsletter at info.kunst.hgk at fhnw.ch. That's info.kunst.hgk at fhnw.ch. Recording and editing, Sonia Fernandez-Pan. Final editing and voiceover, Elena Ziesel. Music, Stephen McAvoy. Research team, Alice Wilke and Marion Ritzmann. Press and communication, Anna Franke and Sarina Scheidegger. Technical support, Esther Hunziger, Stephen Schoch, Konrad Siegel and Chris Handberg. Copyright by Institut Kunst, HDK FHNW 2021.